I realise it was a little while ago, but you might remember that last time we were in the book of Colossians, uh, we devoted our study to three men mentioned in the closing section who uh, wished to greet the Christians at Colossae. Uh, We met them in chapter 4, verses 10 and 11. Their names are Aristarchus, Marcus and Jesus Justice. I gave a little biography of each man. And we noted that at this point in Paul's ministry, when he was under house arrest in Rome, these were the only Christians from a Jewish background who were serving with him. And we talked about why that might have been the case. Uh, We also noted the wonderful testimony that Paul gave to these men. He said that they were a comfort to him. And this evening we're going to consider uh, another three men who are mentioned in this closing section. Uh, The first man we've already studied before, way back when we were in chapter 1. His name is Epaphras, and he was the pastor of the church at Colossae. Uh, The second man we know quite well, Uh, he's a very significant figure in the New Testament. His name is Luke. And the third is a person we also know, And uh, whenever we hear his name, our heart sinks a little bit because his is a sad story and his name is Demas. Our text for study tonight is Colossians chapter 4 verses 12 through 14, but I'm going to read from verse 7 uh, through to the end of the chapter. So please, if you would, follow along as I read aloud. Colossians chapter 4 verse 7. All my state shall Tychicus declare unto you, who is a beloved brother and a faithful minister and fellow servant in the Lord, whom I have sent unto you for the same purpose, that he might know your estate and comfort your hearts, with Onesimus, a faithful and beloved brother who is one of you. They shall make known unto you all things which are done here. Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, saluteth you, and Marcus, sister's son to Barnabas, Touching whom ye receive commandments, if he come unto you, receive him. And Jesus, which is called Justice, who are of the circumcision. These only are my fellow workers unto the kingdom of God, which have been a comfort unto me. Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ, saluteth you, always labouring fervently for you in prayers, that ye may stand perfect and complete in all the will of God. For I bear him record that he hath a great zeal for you and them that are in Laodicea and them in Hierapolis. Luke, the beloved physician, and Demas greet you. Salute the brethren which are in Laodicea and Nymphus and the church which is in his house. And when this epistle is read among you, cause that it be read also in the church of the Laodiceans, and that ye likewise read the epistle from Laodicea. And say to Archippus, Take heed to the ministry which thou hast received in the Lord, that thou fulfil it. The salutation by the hand of me, Paul. Remember my bonds. Grace be with you. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the uh, opportunity we've had over many weeks to study this wonderful epistle in our New Testament. Thank you that we've learned so much about the Lord Jesus Christ. We've learned much about the gospel and we've learned much about our new life in Christ. I pray now as we come to the closing of the letter that you would uh, have us find the things that are here for us, the things that you wish to teach us. We just commit this time of Bible study into your hands now in Jesus' name. Amen. 
The outline for our study tonight is very simple. Uh, We're going to take our text under three headings. Uh, First of all, we're going to consider Epaphras, a praying pastor. And then secondly, we're going to learn about Luke, a beloved doctor. And then we're going to finish with Demas, a sad story. A praying pastor, a beloved doctor, and then a sad story. So let's go straight to heading number one. Epaphras, a praying pastor. Uh, We first met Epaphras in our very first study in the book of Colossians, where I gave an introduction uh, to the letter. And then uh, we talked about him again when we studied chapter 1, verses 6 through 8. That was actually back in February of 2015, if you can uh, believe it. We noted in the introduction to this letter that Epaphras planted the church in Colossae and perhaps he was converted during Paul's time in Ephesus and then uh, he prepared to return as a missionary to his hometown. In chapter 1 verse 7, Paul calls Epaphras a faithful minister of Christ. And uh, that's high praise, isn't it? A faithful minister of Christ. Epaphras had travelled to Rome to see Paul, to bring him news about the church and perhaps to ask for counsel concerning the matters that were troubling the church and that explains the various subjects that are addressed in this epistle. Now it seems as though Epaphras wasn't going to travel back to Colossae with the letter at this time. Uh, Tychicus was going to travel back and take the letter. And so Epaphras asked Paul to pass on a greeting. Verse 12, Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ, saluteth you. In other words, Epaphras says hello. That's lovely. Now this was the message from Epaphras. But with this greeting, there were some things about Epaphras that Paul wanted to share. First of all, Paul said, Epaphras is one of you. Now, he might be here with me at the moment, but remember, he's one of you. He's part of your fellowship. I'm not entirely sure why Paul said this. Uh, Perhaps uh, it was to make it clear who he was talking about. It was the Epaphras they knew from their church and not some other man. Uh, Maybe it was for the benefit of those who'd never met him. Maybe Epaphras had been away for a while and there would be new people in the church who'd never met him. Or maybe Paul said this just to remind them that although he was their leader, he wasn't an outsider, he was one of them. He was part of the body. Then Paul went on to call Epaphras a servant of Christ. Verse 12, Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ. Now there is a sense in which every Christian is a servant of Christ. Uh, The Greek word Paul uses refers to a bondservant or a slave. Uh, All Christians belong to Christ. All Christians are called to serve him. We know the text in 1 Corinthians 6. Uh, What? Know ye not that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost, which is in you, which ye have of God, and ye are not your own? In other words, don't you know you don't belong to yourself? For ye are bought with a price. Therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. Every Christian is a servant of Christ and should live accordingly, but it's likely that in reference to Epaphras here in our text, Paul was using the term in a slightly different 
manner. He was using it to indicate Epaphras' office and his relationship to the Christian community in Colossae. It's a bit like the term minister of the gospel. We're all ministers of the gospel, but in a formal sense, a pastor is a minister of the gospel, and that speaks of his relationship to the church. It speaks to his office. He is especially tasked with ministering the gospel to a local body of believers, And that's probably how Paul uses the term servant of Christ in relation to Epaphras. Paul was saying he he is one of you, a part of your fellowship and a servant of Christ, a minister, a pastor. And this makes perfect sense when we uh, consider what Paul goes on to say. This is a, a subject for another day, but I think there is a lesson here for churches and their pastors. Churches need to remember that their pastors are part of the body, not detached from it, not outside of it, not above it. And pastors need to remember that too. Epaphras was at the same time part of the body, a member of the community of faith, a brother and the minister of Christ. He wasn't coming in from the outside telling these people what to do. He wasn't lording it over them. He was one of them. He shared in their lives... And they shared in his. The third thing Paul says about Epaphras serves as a wonderful example to church leaders in every generation. Paul wanted the Colossians to know that their pastor was, verse 12, always labouring fervently for you in prayers, that ye may stand perfect and complete in all the will of God. There is just one Greek word translated labouring fervently. It's the word agonizomai. It's an athletic term that means to wrestle, to contend, to strive. Uh, This is how Epaphras prayed for the Colossians. He he prayed earnestly and, and seriously. In the words of one author, this expression refers to strenuous and consistent intervention with the Lord on behalf of the Colossians. And then the author adds that this was prayer needed especially in light of the danger posed by the false teachers, which we've seen in our study. It makes sense. The threat to the spiritual welfare of the church was great, and so Epaphras prayed in this manner. What exactly did he pray for? That the saints might stand perfect and complete In all the will of God. Now the Greek word translated stand in this context carries the idea of standing firm. Uh, It's it's a little bit stronger than merely to stand. Uh, You and I can stand up but uh, be a bit wobbly on our feet. A bit unsure. We can can have this feeling that at any moment we might fall over. Uh, but, But the word here means to stand firm. Paul uses it in other places to refer to a a firm adherence to and in the Christian faith. Epaphras' prayer was that the Colossians would stand this way, stand firmly, perfect and complete in all the will of God. Uh, The word perfect carries the idea of maturity. The word complete carries the idea of being full. And it probably means to be fully persuaded or to be fully assured. The overall idea is that of steadfastness in the truth 
and spiritual maturity. Epaphras wanted the Colossians to know and stand firm in the will of God, the revelation of God, the truth of the gospel, and to have that truth transform them inwardly and outwardly. That's what it means to be be perfect and complete. Now what had come into the church was working against that. The false teachers were taking away their assurance. The false teachers were causing them to be unsure about the will of God. Their their spiritual footing was being undermined by erroneous doctrine concerning the person of Christ and mystical experiences and and asceticism, all that stuff we covered especially in chapter 2. Their move towards maturity was under threat. And and this letter was intended to address this threat, to reinforce the will of God, to reinforce the truth in their lives. And Epaphras was praying earnestly that this would happen. In verse 13, Paul sums up the heart of Epaphras for the Christians at Colossae and in two other cities nearby. For I bear him record that he hath a great zeal for you and them that are in Laodicea and them in Hierapolis. Now if you're reading from another translation, instead of great zeal, it might say much labor or hard work or something along those lines. And the sense is really the same. Uh, Today we would say something like, uh, I can vouch for Epaphras that he really cares for you. His heart burns for you. He spends himself for you and for the brethren at Laodicea and the brethren at Hierapolis. Now what a great gift God had given the Christians at Colossae. A praying pastor. A pastor whose heart was 100% for their spiritual welfare. A a pastor who worked hard for them. It's striking that Paul wanted them to know this. Now Paul could have just passed on the greeting from Epaphras, but instead he said these things about Epaphras as well. It seems to me that Paul wanted the Colossians to know that they had a good pastor. And if we consider what he said in some of his other letters, I think it's safe to assume that Paul wanted the Colossians to love and respect Epaphras, to value him and his labour on their behalf. This is what Paul said to the church at Thessalonica, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 12 and 13. And we beseech you, brethren, to know them which labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you. Okay, this is your elders and pastors. And to esteem them very highly in love for their work's sake and be at peace among yourselves. Now there is a message here in our text for the local church. And there is a message for pastors and church leaders. Uh, This would make a wonderful text for a sermon at a pastor's conference. (laughs) Now a pastor is part of the congregation, not separate from it. A pastor is a servant of Christ. A pastor ought to pray like Epaphras did and to pray for exactly the same things. A pastor ought to have a heart that burns for his people, a great zeal. A pastor ought to... Work hard, and uh, this is a good lesson for your pastors. It's very convicting, believe me. 
So this is the first man we meet in our text. And don't be concerned, our study of the next two will be much shorter. There was a greeting from Epaphras, and then a greeting from Luke. Verse 14, Luke, the beloved physician. Now Luke is a very interesting figure in the New Testament. And that's partly because he made a massive contribution to the Christian faith, and yet he's hardly ever mentioned. In fact, his name only appears twice in the text of the New Testament. Here in Colossians chapter 4, and then again in 2 Timothy chapter 4. Just how important is Luke's contribution to our faith? Well, imagine a New Testament without the book of Acts. Now, Acts is like the bridge between Jesus and us. Now, we'd still have the story of Jesus, and we'd still have the theology and doctrine of Peter, Paul, James, and John, but there would be a massive gap if there was no Luke. The book of Acts shows us how the Holy Spirit guided the followers of Jesus to live out the new covenant, to, to put the new covenant into practice. One author summarizes it this way. In his gospel, Luke portrays the incarnate Son of God as the perfect man, while the book of Acts records the world impact of God's revelation in his Son. In his gospel, Luke recounts the matchless story of God incarnate in a human body, while in Acts he sets forth the story of the formation of the church, the mystical body of Christ, under the direction of of the Holy Spirit. And we don't really know anything about Luke's background or his conversion. Uh, all we can say is that he was from a Gentile background and that he was highly educated. That's evident in the fact that he was a doctor and in his writings. Uh, the level of scholarship involved in his writings and the quality of his Greek expression indicates that he was a very learned man. Some suggest that he lived in Antioch in Syria, and uh, that's where he came to know Christ. Perhaps he was part of that thriving church there in Antioch that sent Paul and Barnabas out as missionaries. He was a close companion of Paul, and we know this from the we sections in the book of Acts. You know, we did this, we went there. The author is obviously including himself, and I've put the references for these sections in your notes. Now, as I said, his name only appears twice in the New Testament, and yet his writings make up 27.5% of the New Testament, which means he penned more of the New Testament than any other single author. Even if we say that the Apostle Paul wrote the book of Hebrews, Luke's contribution is still bigger. Now, I didn't know this until I started preparing this lesson, but when you think about it, it's obvious. The Gospel of Luke is very long, 24 chapters, and the shortest chapter in the Gospel of Luke has 31 verses. The longest has 80 verses. Now, the book of Acts has 28 chapters, and again, many of those chapters are quite long. So you can see how together they form the largest body of writing by a single author. Here Paul refers to Luke as the beloved physician. And Paul loved Luke. Evidently Luke was a great friend to Paul and had been a great help over the years. At this time Luke was there with 
Paul in Rome. We know from other places in the New Testament that Paul had significant health problems and no doubt Luke had ministered to him in his professional capacity. Now what a, what a good friend to have. Uh, I have a sister who is a, a doctor and it's, it's a great blessing to be able to call her up and ask her opinion when there is a, a medical issue in our family. So we can see how this was one of the ways that God looked after Paul. Now he brought Luke into his life. A man with this particular set of expertise. Now there's a lot we could say about Luke and his relationship to Paul, but I just want to make one point, and then we'll move on to the third and final character in our text, and it's this. Now when we, when we think of Luke, it reminds us that God also uses talented and educated people to do his work. Now we know from 1 Corinthians chapter 1 that God has chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise and God hath chosen the weak things of the world to confound the things which are mighty and base things of the world and things which are despised. That's true. Uh, before that Paul says, not many wise men after the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called. Now, not many are called, Paul says, but some are. And God uses clever people too. And when I listen to some of these clever people preach and defend the Christian faith, I think to myself, I'm so glad he's on our side. That's great. (laughs) Now we do have to be wary of intellectual pride and of giving undue prominence to the educated person. That was a problem at the church at Corinth. That's what Paul was addressing in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. But we also have to be careful not to despise the educated person. In my limited experience, it's not the exaltation of the talented or educated that's been the problem, it's, it's the tearing down. Now, in, in my life, I've witnessed a strain of anti-intellectualism in our conservative circles, a, a kind of Christian tall poppy syndrome. Uh, I've seen it where being uneducated is almost a virtue, and it's wrong. And really, it's despising the grace of God. It's being a poor steward of the gifts that he has given. And friends, Luke, Luke was a brilliant man. It's likely he would have put all of us in the shade, intellectually speaking. Uh, in the words of one author, the prologue of his gospel is fully worthy to stand with the preface of such noted Greek masters as Herodotus, Thucydides and Polybius. Luke had wonderful, wonderful intellectual gifts and God used him. Now, if you have gifts like this, don't hide your light under a bushel. Don't be embarrassed. God God can use you. If you love reading and learning, if you love ideas, if you write into science and have a knack for it, praise the Lord. And for we parents, if our children are blessed in this way, if they have a love for learning, if they have a particular aptitude for mathematics or science or art or history, let's encourage them. we, We need to value their gift. We need to teach them to value their gifts, encourage them to be humble and to be good stewards of what God has entrusted them with. And so, a greeting from Epaphras, a greeting from Luke. Then finally, there was a greeting from a man called Demas. And his is a sad story. Verse 14, Luke, the beloved physician, and Demas greet you. 
Demas was a companion of the Apostle, a part of the ministry team, and he was there with Paul in Rome. We don't know about his background or his conversion or what part he played in the ministry. It does seem that he was with Paul for an extended period of time. We know that Paul was eventually released from prison and and spent perhaps two or three more years travelling and preaching. Uh, He was then arrested and imprisoned in Rome for a second time and eventually he was executed. Now it's possible that Demas was with Paul during this time. Uh, This is suggested by the mention of his name in the last epistle that Paul wrote. So please, if you would, turn now to 2 Timothy chapter 4. 2 Timothy chapter 4. Just to recap, uh, Demas was with Paul during his first imprisonment in Rome. We know that from our text in Colossians and from the mention of his name in the book of Philemon. Perhaps he'd been part of the missionary team for a long time. It's likely that he continued with Paul after his release. And then when Paul was imprisoned in Rome again and writing a final letter to Timothy, this is what we read, 2 Timothy chapter 4, and I'm going to read from verse 9 to verse 11 because because Paul mentions some of the other characters we've studied. Verse 9, Do thy diligence to come shortly unto me, for Demas hath forsaken me, having loved this present world, and is departed unto Thessalonica, Crescens to Galatia, Titus unto Dalmatia. Only Luke is with me, Take Mark and bring him with thee, for he is profitable to me for the ministry. And Tychicus have I sent to Ephesus. Some of those names should be very familiar to us from our study in Colossians chapter 4. There is a very sad contrast here, isn't there? Luke is with me. I've sent these other men out on various ministry assignments, but Demas hath forsaken me. This is what we think of whenever we hear this name, don't we? You've probably heard whole sermons preached on this text. Demas hath forsaken me, having loved this present world. Demas left Paul's company, he left the ministry, and it was because he loved this present world. Uh, The Greek word translated forsaken carries the idea of abandoning someone amidst adverse circumstances. Uh, Leaving them in the lurch is how we might put it today. It was a difficult time. It was difficult to stand with Paul, difficult to minister the gospel. And for Demas, the appeal of the world proved too much. The, The prospect of an easier life. And so he left Paul there in prison. He checked out of the ministry. And it's a tragedy that all of the good things he must have done are forgotten. And this is what we remember about him. Now we must be careful not to draw the conclusion that Demas abandoned Christ and the Christian faith. Paul didn't say, Demas hath forsaken Jesus. He said, Demas hath forsaken me. Interestingly, this is a point that Calvin picks up on In his commentary, and I quote, It was truly base in such a man to prefer the love of this world to Christ. And yet we must not suppose that he altogether denied Christ, or gave himself up either to ungodliness or to the allurements of the world, but he merely preferred his private convenience or his safety to the life of Paul. 
He could not have assisted Paul without many troubles and vexations attended by imminent risk of his life. He was exposed to many reproaches and must have submitted to many insults and been constrained to leave off the care of his own affairs. And therefore, being overcome by his dislike of the cross, he resolved to consult his own interests. I love that last sentence. And therefore, being overcome by his dislike of the cross, he resolved to consult his own interests. If we believe what the Bible says, and of course we do, then we'd have to conclude that things didn't turn out for Demas as he thought they would. Sure, his physical circumstances may have been more comfortable. His day-to-day life may have been somewhat easier, but what spiritual blessings were lost? What, what joy? Now that deep and abiding sense of peace and purpose and, and satisfaction that only Jesus gives, this is lost when a Christian, as it were, puts down his cross and goes after the world. Now the, the, the fruit of the Spirit, that, that is real prosperity. The, the fruit of the Spirit, that, that, that is a genuinely good life. And that is lost when Christians check out of the Christian life, when they make the choice that Demas did and we'd be fooling ourselves if we thought we could never be tempted this way and we probably have been at one time or another or many times there have been occasions when compared to our present circumstances a worldly way of life seems so much easier it was very attractive and maybe there have been seasons where we did check out Seasons of backsliding, seasons in the wilderness where like the children of Israel we were hard-hearted and rebellious. Now, praise God if he, if he brought you through that and brought you back into fellowship with himself, back into the life of the church, back into the service of Christ. And I realise uh, it's a sombre note on which to end our study tonight, but I think it's needful for us to ponder. Now, I'm confident that when it's all said and done, we don't want to be remembered in the way that Demas is. Now, we're never going to be perfect. Uh, We all have our weaknesses. We've made mistakes and we're going to make many more. But we don't want to be known for this. We, We don't want to be known for having walked away from the service of our lovely Lord Jesus Christ. We don't want to be known for having loved this present world. We want to be known for having loved Jesus. Now, I know sometimes it's really hard. I find it hard, believe me. This Christian life involves taking up a cross. But it's worth it. It's worth it for a better life now. It's worth it for a life of real blessing. And it will be worth it on that great day when we see him. By God's grace, let's keep on keeping on. Amen.